Thank you for tuning in to the sermon webcast of Living Savior. We are one church serving in two locations, Asheville and Hendersonville, North Carolina. For more information, go to lsavior.org. T-O-R-T-U-R-E. T-O-R-T-U-R-E. Commanding officer and naval pilot Jeremiah Denton was flying on a bombing raid and was shot down by the North Vietnamese in 1965 and was taken as a prisoner of war. For several years, he spent time in multiple torturous prison camps, and during his time, they forced him to be in front of a camera as they put together this propaganda-infused film to try and make the world, including the U.S., believe that these prisoners, including Denton, were being treated fairly. While his captors were talking during the interview, he deliberately and notably, and later it became famously, blinked in Morse code. T-O-R-T-U-R-E. Torture as his comrades and intelligence officers across the seas saw this, they picked up the message, and because of this brave act, Denton and many of his other comrades and fellow prisoners of war were freed. He had spent eight years. Eight years. How do you get through something like that? Eight years in torturous prison camps. It was actually 50 years ago from Easter, 1969, when he was spending time in one of those prison camps that he really wrestled with that that question. When you look through your eyes and all that you see is that all is lost and everything is falling apart, then then what do you have? When, When he was thinking about how all of his hopes and dreams that he had thought would be accomplished up to that point were nothing, disappeared almost into thin air. The time that he had lost with his wife and with his kids and would he even see them again when he looked at his wife, his life and what it was worth and whether or not he should even give in. One of his special quotes later was, it was a moral dilemma more than even a physical one. Should he just give in so that he could maybe get away when when literally everything is falling apart, when you were flying high and get shot out of the sky and everything seems lost? Then, then what? I don't think you have to be a prisoner of war for eight years to have your own moments when you might think of those things, when... When life was going great and it was up here and then suddenly out of nowhere, call it disease, call it death, call it divorce, call it division from family, call it whatever you want to call it, suddenly brings you out of the sky. He he referred to this as something that was literally outside of this world. He later wrote a book and entitled it, When Hell Was in Session, it, it later became a movie. And whether it's hell or high water for you or whether it's the highs or especially the lows in life, what is it when... All seems lost as you look through your eyes and everything is falling apart. What do you have then? And, and I would dare say that's an important question, not just because he had it and not just because we also have it in our not-so-best moments, but because that's the same question that they were asking not in Holy Week of 1969 or 2019, but that very first Holy Week 2,000 years ago. Everything was going fine. Everything was great until Thursday when he was betrayed and captured treated unfairly and tried unjustly, beaten brutally beyond what anyone would face in a prison camp, and then crucified, the most horrifying form of execution. 
And as these women in our lesson, along with Peter and the rest of them, looked through their eyes and saw their friend and their teacher and their savior, and they saw what they saw and they knew what they knew, and he was dead when all was lost and everything is falling apart, then what? My friends, what they discovered that first Easter, what Jeremiah Denton had that Easter is the very same thing you and I are going to rediscover again today. That regardless of whatever you see and regardless of whatever is in front of you, when all is lost and everything is falling apart, Easter still stands. Period. We see that in our lesson today from Luke chapter 24. Easter still stands in the face of grief, in the face of disbelief, and in the face of guilt. I invite you to have that open. Luke 24, the gospel lesson I just read. Since Easter still stands, then grief gives way to greater joy. You know what it's like when your world stands still and everything comes undone because you've lost a loved one. Whether you were in the hospital, in hospice care, in a funeral, or standing there in your own home, or even graveside, you, you know what it's like to feel that lump in your throat and to feel that big ache in your gut, and it's almost like you're taking short breaths because you can't really breathe. You, you, you know what that's like. Grief literally has been described to me, and I like this description. It's literally like some part of your life has fallen off and fallen apart. And worse yet, there's nothing you can do about it. Just, just like these women. Grief-stricken, they're walking to the tomb early that Easter morning with spices because they were expecting to find what? Their friend who had been hastily prepared yet improperly for burial, and so they were going to anoint him properly and prepare him for the rest of his lying days dead. Yet what they found was no guard no, and an empty tomb, no stone. And an angelic message tells them that Jesus had been raised from the dead. They go back to tell the disciples, and the disciples dismiss it, thinking that they're speaking nonsense, our lesson tells us. And Peter, whether out of curiosity or whether out of hope, or for a whole host of reasons we cannot see into his mind, into his heart, he takes out off only to find no stone, no guard, and no Jesus, only folded up pieces of linen. And they didn't really fully understand it, but my friends, you do. Because that changes the way that you view your darkest moments in life. You never see this world the same. When you hear the promises of God, and you know that he went to the cross for you, and you know that he was raised for you, it changes the way you view everything. Everything. Whether it is a hospital bed or hospice care, whether it's a gurney or your graveside, whether it's the corpse of a close Christian loved one or the body of any believer, you don't stand there with only grief. Yes, I'm not saying it's going to be easy, and I'm not saying you're going to walk around smiling. Christians still do mourn, and God bless it. But that is not all that you have. Because death is not the end. Since Christ was most certainly raised from the dead, then that means they didn't find the Savior who brought death to death. And who brings life and immortality? And he brings this to you through the light of the gospel. Therefore, my friends, when, whatever you're facing, the darkest moments and everything is falling apart, you have this, even in the face of grief. You have this fact that Easter still stands. And you know that because that is why you and I even say to one another, Christ is risen. Christ is risen. And those aren't just words. 
that is the entirety of the hope on which our faith rests. Easter still stands, and since it does, then grief gives way to greater joy. I didn't say grief doesn't exist. I said your grief gives way to a greater and eternal joy. And isn't that convenient, the critics will say. Like the very thing that you kind of want to have to cope, that's the thing that you latch on to, dear Christian. So the skeptics and the cynics, as they become critics, would like to say about Christianity. It kind of goes like this. Well, that's nice. You know, everybody needs to cope with something. The opiate of the masses, this is just another one of your prescriptions. This is just your medication, the thing that you need when you have no other answers. And so you need to latch on to something to kind of give you that hope when you're looking at somebody and you're totally overwhelmed with grief. And so what do you do in response to that, dear Christian? I mean, it's hard enough when we are already struggling with our grief. What do we do when we are also wrestling with disbelief? That of others or that that rises up inside our own heads and hearts? Well, first of all, consider this. What were these women expecting to find? It doesn't say that they were expecting to find a resurrected Lord. They had spices. They got up early. They were sad. The other accounts tell us they were wondering about how they're going to move the stone away because they thought that the stone was still going to be there, how they're going to convince the guard, what they're going to do with, with that whole bit. You don't make very notable the thing that you weren't looking for. If I tell you that I'm going to my shed and I'm going to my shed to find my lawnmower and then I also tell you I went to my shed and I found a black bear living in there, your number one conclusion wouldn't be, he's telling stories. No, because I wasn't looking for the black bear. Therefore, the only reason why I would find the black bear in my shed, which thankfully that's never happened. Now my kids are never going to go to the shed, by the way. But thankfully, that's never happened. But the only conclusion you would say is that, well, that actually had to have happened. You don't make note of the things that you're not looking for. You're not going to tell a story and say, I went into my house and found a fairy with pixie dust. You don't make note of the things you're not looking for. Unless, of course, it astonishes you, which is exactly what happened not just with the women, but also with Peter. Peter goes to prove this wrong. They think that what the women said was nonsense. This isn't something that they conveniently invented. It was a truth that confronted them, a truth that was not invented, but discovered. Firstly. Secondly, Why would they go on record to look like fools? The women were going to the right place, but for the wrong reason. And they admit it. You you know who wrote this account? Luke? The Holy Spirit inspired Luke to write this. And at the very outset in chapter 1, he himself is a skeptic who's kind of questioning the whole thing. He says, I carefully investigated these stories. Maybe he even uh, questioned and, and interrogated these women. And so why is it that they, when telling their own story, would admit that we totally had it wrong and we didn't believe Jesus, even though he told us here and here, oh yeah, and and that other time, and then the angel had to tell us, and then we remembered. Usually when people are telling their own story, they'll say, you know, I really knew all along. Especially, sorry guys, especially men. I mean, look at the guys here, right? They had to kind of mansplain to the ladies that, you know, dead people kind of stay dead. I don't know if you guys knew that. So I had to enlighten you a little bit there. Mm-hmm. And how'd that go for him? And usually guys, especially when the wife or the significant other is not present, and let's say they're just talking with Dr. Luke, is that the moment where they're going to be like admitting how wrong they were when the women were right? No, that's a time when it's like, you know, I, I kind of knew that something was wrong. You know, I knew something was up, so I just had to like check it out, you know, you know, like we were going to check it out. 
But they go on record to not only say that they didn't know, but that the women were right, and they referred to them as speaking nonsense. Who does that? And why would they do that? On not just Luke's account, but all of them. Because it was true. This is not something that was a convenient invention. This was something that they discovered. It collided with who they were, and they were fine with it because it gave them a greater reality. Resurrection faith. This is not some hoax. Nobody who is worth their intellectual salt, Christian or not, believes that the tomb still has Jesus somewhere. Everybody believes that the tomb is empty. What nobody really agrees on, including the other side, is that Jesus actually rose from the dead. But here you have clear evidences that that can only be true. Jesus rose from the dead and they were witnesses of it, not because they were inventing a convenient truth, but because it was a truth that they discovered. And there's a big difference between those two things. I, I was talking with a pastor friend of mine who, who put this well. The, the difference between invented truth and discovered truth is oceans apart. When you invent something, you work really, really, really hard at it. And then once you find it, you say with Einstein, Eureka, I've got it. And you're sure of it. And it was the thing that you were looking for. That's invented truth. Way over here is discovered truth. It's totally different. In fact, when you find it, you're not even really sure what you're seeing. It's, it's kind of like you would see in an archaeologist who's looking for city ruins. And he finds this weird object. And after a lot of research and some more digging and some investigating and talking to other people in his field, he later discovers the truth that it's not city ruins, it's a fossil. It's discovered truth, whether he likes it or not. Think of even Christopher Columbus. When he discovered the new world, he really wasn't sure where he was and the people he was seeing, which is why he was calling this place the wrong place and calling the people the wrong name. If it was invented, we would st still be in India and we would still be calling people the wrong thing. But he discovered it, even though, despite the fact that he didn't know what, where he was and what he was seeing, despite the fact that these women and Peter didn't really know what it, it was that they were thinking and seeing, despite the fact that you and I and maybe the whole world along with us don't really know what we're hearing, can't even really wrap our brains around what we're reading, seeing, and thinking. Discovered truth doesn't ask for your opinion. Did the grass ask you if it should be green today? Or the sky that it should look blue? You see, you discover those things, and so you know them to be true. So too, they were witnesses, not of a truth that they conveniently invented. It made them look like fools. It was difficult and more, more difficult for them later on in life too, as they would die for this not conveniently invented, but because it was discovered. And my friends, that is a whole lot to say for you and me. Because God doesn't necessarily ask for your opinion on the matter. Christ is not raised from the dead because you feel like it is so, because you think like it is so, and because you want it to be so. Christ is raised from the dead regardless of what you feel, what you think, what you hope for, even what you believe in. Christ is raised from the dead, and therefore we believe it. It is the object of our faith. Our faith doesn't make that thing a thing. That's not how it works. And so when you're looking at everything in your life, then consider what we said at the beginning. When you're looking at through eyes that see everything becoming undone and all things falling apart and all things that are being lost, do you really, really, really want to rest everything on what you think and on what you feel and on your own strength and on your own resolve? 
Because think of where that lands you. You can, you can rest it on your career, but what happens when careers come apart? You can rest it on relationships, but what happens when there's divorce and when your kids are hurting or maybe when your kids are hurting you? Or when friendships are fractured, relationships are ripped apart, what then? You, you can rest everything on your value system, who you are, your moral resolve, your compass, the, the betterment of who you are compared to other people around you. But what happens when you trust in somebody and they have a moral, moral failure or you yourself have it? Because whatever it is that you're looking at, as we said at the beginning, it cannot fail you and it cannot falter. It cannot fall apart. When everything is coming undone around you, it has to be something that stands. What's then? And that is why you have something greater than what you see and what you feel and even what you think. It is that Easter still stands. And since it does, then disbelief gives way to greater faith. God doesn't want you to face the greatest struggles in your life with just some gumption. And so he gives you a resurrected Lord. He doesn't want you to face the, the great antagonizing of the world around you alone. And so he says, I'm always with you. And he rose to make that true. My friends, Easter still stands, and therefore, since it does, disbelief gives way to greater faith. And if there's anybody who needs that, it's you and me. Just like there's somebody who needed it back then by the name of Peter. Imagine this for a second. You have a really good friend, but for whatever reason, there's just this weird scenario where you're surrounded by a bunch of other people and you kind of disown him. You pretend like you don't. Nobody there likes this guy. You don't really know why because he's never done anything wrong to you. But in this encounter, you disown him. You pretend like you don't even know him and you're so sure about it. And at the very last thing, the very most hurtful last thing that you say, he overhears. And all you have is locked eyes. And that's the last moment you have with him before he's killed. That's Peter. That's Peter with Jesus. You think he was racked by guilt? Think maybe that was a reason why he wanted to go running to the tomb? I don't know. See, guilt can play tricks with you. Worse than being stuck behind enemy lines and behind prison bars, it never, ever leaves you no matter where you are. But if Christ was raised, that means God took all of your sin and every mistake you've ever made, all of your guilt, the amassment of it all, and he paid for it. He canceled it on the cross. He literally took it to the cross, punished his son so he would never punish you, and he raised his son to prove that your sins and your guilt have no control over you. So when you tell yourself, or anyone else tells yourself that you are less, that you are not really as valuable as others might think, as you would like to think of yourself, when you are your own worst critic, that has no sway against you because you have a resurrected Lord, and my friends, the Easter still stands so yes, even in the face of guilt, that guilt gives way to absolutely greater grace. People like Peter needed that. The women needed that. And I would dare say you and I need that too. I said at the beginning that Jeremiah Denton was looking through the eyes that saw that all was lost and that everything was falling apart. And you probably are thinking that I'm talking about him. And that's true. 50 years ago on Easter, stuck in a torturous prison camp, asking a lot of those questions about what next, what do I have, when all seems lost and when everything's falling apart. But he wasn't just looking through his own eyes. He was also looking through the eyes of faith, even trying to ponder what it was like to look through the eyes of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Because in conflict with all of those questions, 
he had Easter resolve. And even when it seemed like all was lost, even as Mary held her son, he had Easter faith because he knew that Easter still stood. And so he actually composed a poem. I invite you to turn to the very back of your worship folder. Let's read this together. The soldiers stare, then drift away. Young John finds nothing he can say. The veil is rent, the deed is done, and Mary holds her only son. His limbs grow stiff, the night grows cold, but naught can lose that mother's hold. Her gentle, anguished eyes seem blind. Who knows what thoughts run through her mind? Perhaps she thinks of last week's palms with cheering thousands offering alms, or dreams of Cana on the day she nagged him till she got her way. Her face shows grief but not despair. Her head, though bowed, has faith to spare. For even now she could suppose his thorns might somehow yield a rose. Her life with him was full of signs that God writes straight with crooked lines. Dark clouds can hide the rising sun, and all seem lost when all is one. All seem lost when all is one. And all of this was just as Jesus said. This wasn't an accident. It was God's entire purpose, as the angel said to the women. This is just what he told you, that he would suffer and die and rise. This is all part of his plan. So whether you're flying high or you've been shot down with grief, whether you're free or whether you're imprisoned by disbelief, whether hell is in session for you once again or it's another day in paradise or maybe that hell that is in session is your own guilt that never leaves you. Easter still stands. As Jesus didn't go back into that tomb and there's no body. And so although no matter how dark it may get, God writes straight with crooked lines and even though all might seem lost, all is already one. And so since Easter still stands, my friends, that means that your grief gives way to greater joy, that your disbelief gives way to greater faith, and your guilt gives way to much greater grace. Easter still stands. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. Amen.